this does seem to be, at least initially 100 days in, the platform that many of us thought that like Obama would lead on, and it wasn't. Hi from the Grio, I'm your co-host, Dr. Christina Greer, and today we have a very special guest co-host. Hi, my name is Megan Ming Francis from the University of Washington, and you're listening to What's In It For Us. So happy you're here, um, especially from the West Coast. Okay, yes. we have so much to discuss. President Biden addressed the nation. It wasn't the State of the Union, but you know he he sort of had his first big showing. Then we had your friend Senator Tim Scott, <laughs> who did the rebuttal. And then lastly, we'll discuss the Kentucky Derby and the horse that was named after Brianna Taylor. Oh, um, on the first one, Biden's address to the nation. I was very impressed. I, I think that there's so much to dig into there. Uh, Tim Scott rebuttal, that is definitely your cousin. And it speaks to the, the point here that Black people are not a monolith. I'm not yet sure what to think about the horse, but I'm looking forward to talking more about that with you. That, and as always, we will think about what's in it for us. So before we get into it, I just want to have a little quick timeline check. Um, did you watch the Oscars? I did not watch the Oscars, though sometimes I kind of feel like I did because I saw it play out on the Twitter timeline. Exactly. So <laughs> I don't need to watch the Oscars because I watch Twitter. But Twitter was all a buzz because Chadwick Boseman was snubbed for his Oscar, uh, mm -hmm. a posthumous Oscar. And then our boy Anthony Hopkins gets it. He's not even in town. <laughs> Nobody knew he <laughs> made a movie. Everyone's like, what? <laughs> So it's just what? like this complete and total disconnect. It reminded me of when Chris Rock hosted the Oscars and he went to 125th Street Magic Johnson Theaters and asked all the Black people, like, what movies did you see this year? And there were none of the movies that were Oscar movies. Mm -hmm. However, folks did see My Rainey's Black Bottom. Folks absolutely loved Chadwick's performance. We know that mm -hmm. he passed away just a month after they wrapped. Mm -hmm. And then he was snubbed, as was Viola Davis. It's like the color purple all over again. Oh. So... What did you think about it? I mean, his family was basically like, listen, he didn't chase awards. He just did his right. craft. Did you feel right. some kind of way or did Twitter help you feel some kind of way? I didn't feel some type of way. And then after Twitter, I was like, maybe I should feel some type of way. But I feel like, I mean, I think that kind of the message from the family about how Chadwick never really chased the awards was so true that he lived a life that didn't like, there was not a need for like all of the awards and all the cookies in which many people like measure their success and how great they are. That was never really important to him. It was like all about the craft and like if he acted well. Um, and that to me was like, can I, cause I, I, and you know, in terms of, I feel like the history of like black people in Hollywood, for so long, it's that like they've been shut out institutionally from these award shows, right? And so it's not a matter of like we think that people are great actors because they get they get like right. institutional cookies, right? Um, right? And so I, but then at the Twitter, I was like, maybe he should have, right? He, where was Anthony Hopkins? It also made me think of though was the ways that so many of us in our various occupations, not just Hollywood, it's like, well, we're never recognized by like the white awards. So why should we even care? So it's like, should we even care about the Oscars? Because we know that like every now and again, they have like Negro night and like give some awards, whatever. Right. We saw, like Halle Berry gets it for Monsters Ball. I was like, really? She's one of the best black actresses 
in the history of cinema? I don't think so, right? Or like in political science, like, or, you know, whether you work in nonprofits or philanthropy, it's like, why are we chasing these awards from white institutions where we haven't been and still aren't fully recognized? So let's just keep doing the work and just the chips fall where they fall. We shouldn't chase the awards, but also it's that there are a, a type of like status as well as for me, and I think that's really important like for the black community, money that comes along with a type of recognition, right? And the, the longer, point. yeah, and then the longer where when black people do not win these types of awards, whether it's in the academy, whether it's in Hollywood, like it means that like one's wages because it's so, in so many ways connected to these elite forms of hierarchy, then like our way down, right? And mm -hmm. so that's one of the things it's like, if we think about who are so-called A-list actors in Hollywood and who's bringing in these big amounts in terms of like demands for price per movie, it's oftentimes white actors because they win these awards, right? Because I think that sometimes the amount of money that one makes is sometimes, not all the times, tied to these award shows, it's important because of that and opportunities. And I want to see more Black films made. I want to see more Black actors, right? Mm -hmm. But like, shout out to Tyler Perry because he brings Black actors on and puts them up to the rate that they are supposed to have. Tyler Perry on this issue is one of the most complicated figures, right? That like, because there's, and I think that tension is so important around him. He has provided so many opportunities for actors. And jobs, and jobs, jobs, jobs. Jobs in front and behind the camera, jobs. Money. Do I love the movies? Mm. Do I think sometimes they're anti-Black women? Yes. So, okay, we got to have you back so we can just have Tyler Perry. <laughs> um, and as always, we will continue to think about what is in it for us. Okay, so Megan, I wanted to have you on this week because A, you're one of my favorite political scientists. And B, hey. I, wanted, a, I wanted to discuss President Joe Biden, who makes me a little nervous sometimes because, you know, he can just sometimes be a little out the box, Uncle Joe. But I thought he did a really good job addressing the nation. He urged Congress to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which is going to bolster police accountability and ban certain maneuvers. And I think that as a white man, he can sort of come to Congress and say things that, say, Obama couldn't, and even the way Kamala Harris can't to a certain extent. But... It was also historic for folks who care about gender politics. It was the first time in history two women stood behind the president as he delivered this joint address to Congress. We had Vice President Kamala Harris, the first woman to be elected to the position, alongside Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi from my favorite city of Baltimore. Um, and she was the first woman elected as Speaker in 2007. And then he told gun, uh, lawmakers that we had to you know, have serious action on gun violence in this country. It's an epidemic. White folks clearly don't care that like folks are shooting up schools and shops and they're clinging to the Second Amendment in ways that are absolutely absurd. So how do you think Joe Biden did? And we'll get into some of the money stuff too with the taxes uh, in a second. I was pleasantly surprised by his address um, in part because I felt that it was more progressive and left of center than I thought it would be. Right. Um, Absolutely. And like, yeah, everything that you just mentioned in terms of like on policing, on guns, right? Like each one of those could have been like a whole like news talking day, but he was like, yo, I'm about to teach you policing, 
guns. I'm also going to do in terms of like, what is it? Affordable preschool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Taxes. Well, I feel like he's, he's done a little bait and switch low key. I mean, I know it's yeah. only a hundred days, but he's like, listen, y'all want any shots in these arms? You got these shots in these arms. <laughs> like what else you want? So I, you know what is fascinating to me? It's like, he is being the Obama everybody thought Obama would be. And I have always said the only thing radical about Barack Obama is his skin color. Like Barack Obama was in the middle of the road and everything he said, people were like, he's radical. He's radical. It's like, no, read, read the transcript. It's center. It's center, center, sometimes right of center. And Joe Biden, I think because he's the 78-year-old year white man, folks are like, okay, he's going to be the centrist. And, you know, he had some old business with the 94 crime bill that everyone's obsessed with. It was like that every Black CBC member supported and almost every single Black mayor across the country supported too. Don't forget. But now he's like, hey, listen, if you're going to be a monkey, be a gorilla. Let's come in here. We got two years before the midterms, barely. And who's to say that I'm going to have unified government because we saw what happened to Barack Obama. So like, let me just roll out. I mean, I was, I was surprised. And also listening to him talk about raising the taxes on the rich and corporations saying they need to pay their fair share. Cause we know that Democrats and Republicans kind of double dip into the same donation pool. So for him to be like, Hey, listen, you know, like free lunch is over. We're going to give it to the kids. (laughs) We got to actually give these kids free lunch because the corporations keep having it. I mean, what else were you just like fold over by? I love the juxtaposition you've you you've raised here between him and Obama because I think that is that is so crucial here, right? There does seem to be a bait and switch, and like in in a weird way, this is this does seem to be at least initially a hundred days in the platform that many of us thought that like Obama would lead on, and it wasn't right, and that in some ways it's also quite clear that there are some lessons from the Obama administration about the about the limits of a type of centrist technocratic type of governance um and then like he has switched, but again, I think that part of that switching must be attributed to the movements, whether that's mm-hmm. around labor, whether that's around the care economy, immigration, and of course black lives matter for me, I think one of the great things is also where I felt like he leaned into was in terms of that government is good, right? This, uh, yes. what is it? The American Families Plan, right? This, uh, this thing in terms of community college and childcare and schooling. And I think that especially coming out of the last four years of Trump, it's been this narrative that government is bad. Government is wasteful. Government does all these terrible things, right? And so it's like, it feels like part of what he's doing through this like American families plan is by helping to like create a new narrative that government is on the side of people, that it wants to help people mm-hmm. and that it can be, it can help it people. does good. Yeah. And me, and for so long, Republicans are like, no, government's terrible. Destroy it. And it's like, but you all destroy it. And then we got to build the safety net, social safety net back again. I mean, this happens every single democratic uh, to Republican transition. It's like Republicans take everything away, give all the tax breaks to their rich friends, and then Democrats have to come back and like try and build up the country again because everyone's destitute and falling off a cliff. What I think is so fascinating though was the embodiment for me of Biden, where I'm always telling my students, it's like it's protest politics and electoral politics. And I know you do a lot with like movement politics and how philanthropy like works with movements, but it's like to me, he's the embodiment of it. it's like protesters got us in the streets to demand what we wanted. We got an election that gave us something similar to what we wanted. Nobody gets everything they want. And then protest politics is going to keep our elected officials 
on task with what we want them to do. And it seems like Joe Biden right now is like, listen, I've wanted this job my whole life. So I'm not going to mess it up. Like, I'm going to work. Mm-hmm. And, and try and rescue it from the shambles that that man had for four years. Right. Like, yeah. we, I, I think we still are in some sort of traumatic shock of like, we survived four years and a global pandemic under a man who was like, destroy government. And I think that this was also in terms of it's such a good time to come in and ask like the ultra rich um, and corporations um, about what their responsibility is, right? Like this is like, is is what you wanted before and all of the destruction that happened, then it needs to be, we need to have a different type of conversation about what your responsibility is, how much more taxes are you actually going to pay that you can't make all of this money and leave everybody else behind, that you have a responsibility in this just like everybody else. And I love, I mean, speaking in in terms of, I think a lot about philanthropy and in terms of like what people owe and how in so many ways there's been so much free reign. And like right now in terms of the ultra rich, I've been like, hey, hey, like don't really tax this, don't worry because government is bad and is mismanaged. We know, we know what is good for people but you can never hold us accountable, right? So we can do harm, whether it's around education, whether it's around the climate, whether it's around climate or immigration or criminal justice reform, and then we can like walk away. Well, I love on the local arguments, like, or they'll leave, right? So we can't tax them because like, they'll leave New York, they'll leave Seattle. And it's like, really? I don't think so. So, okay. So we see all this and we, we know that, you know, the robber barons of, of yore and the wealthy people over generations it doesn't trickle down the same way Reaganomics never trickle down. Rich people no. don't trickle down their money. But you know, if if streets get <laughs> uh, fearful enough and crime gets crazy enough, then they mm-hmm. might want to think about investing in said government. But your boy Tim Scott was in charge of the rebuttal. Now, normally the rebuttal for the Republicans has been like the kiss of death. I call it like the cover of, I usually call it like the cover of Essence. You know how like when couples are on the cover of Essence and then like a year later they break up. <laughs> so I'm like, don't Essence yourself. Cause you know, Joni Ernst, her career kind of went nowhere. Um, Bobby Jindal from Louisiana, uh, Marco Rubio and the, the, the oh, shaking of the hand water. and the drinking of the water, splash, water, splash, yeah. splash all over your face. So like people to, and you know, Nikki Haley, like after that, it was just sort of like, eh, we don't really want you. So I thought it was an interesting choice for him to accept. Obviously, it's like, hey, let's pull out a Negro because we're talking about, you know, crime and and protest and Black Lives Matter. But I just, I mean, I ground my teeth almost to dust watching this man. I was about to have a nosebleed, seriously. Because on the one hand, you're going to lay out all the ways this country has been Uh racist to you individually. Never making an institutional argument. Never asking why it is that your grandfather couldn't read. Never asking why it is y'all were raised in a one-room shack. Never asking why nobody had a good education. Never asking why, you know, it's like, and COVID is real. It's like, uh, yeah, because your president didn't believe in science. Like, all these things. And then, this fool has the nerve to say that America is not racist. After you just gave a sermon on said racism. And you're just like, and... And I'll be honest, looking at the Tim Scotts of the world and the Ben Carsons and all those folks that shucked and jived for four years has really hurt my heart because I was like, oh, this is also how the institution of slavery lasted so long. Like, yes, it was white people. 
true white supremacy anti-black racism patriarchy and capitalism but it's like it just showed me how black people also helped uphold that institution right so it was like oh there were people who were like hey massa they're planning an insurrection like just so you know <laughs> it's like oh my god <laughs> like they those people were real and i know they were but like looking at tim scott carry that water and like tap dance around what the real ah. issues are just filled me with a certain kind of white hot rage that i hadn't felt in a long time what you have just stated sums up exactly how i feel and i feel like it's one of the the most searing analysis on his rebuttal that i have heard slash read um since he has given his rebuttal i mean for me one of the things you mentioned this at the, at the beginning of your comments that struck me was just how how lack of a structural or an institutional analysis that there was um, in his rebuttal. I mean, it was stunning. And in some ways it was also fitting that he as an individual, <laughs> right, would absolve the institution and structures and provide us with an individual argument, right? And then like absolve this country and say that this is not a racist country, but yet tell a story, a clear story about structural racism and how it's impacted actually his personal life, right? And like, that to me, if anything is like, this is a story about how one person, how individually we cannot get rid of racism because racism is structured into our institutions as a society. And so any individual plan going forward cannot then like get out something that is actually institutionalized. And I yes. don't know where so many of these people who, as you said, tap dance around like white supremacy, like I, I, I don't understand where this analysis is. It's so obvious to me, but it is also the case that so much of the way that this country has approached issues of racism, white supremacy has been through an individual frame, right? That we can lift ourselves up through hard work, that if we just have the right institutions and go to the right schools, mm -hmm. then individually we can defeat the demons that are white supremacy. What? Like, that's crazy. Well, I, it's <laughs> yeah, the equivalent but, of our fancy degrees. It's like painting a room in a rotten house. So it's like, okay, the room looks fine, but the house is ablaze and falling into the ground. But I think what's so interesting is you mentioned this idea of the insidiousness of white supremacy where so many people don't even see it, know it, and recognize it. So going to our third point, which is how you can name a horse in the Kentucky Derby after a black woman who has been murdered in your state, by the way, right? And so there's there's a level of like sort of rawness that I think people in Kentucky feel that not saying that we don't feel it in the same ways in Washington and New York, but like, let's be clear, region is real. And so mm. for this family to think that they're honoring this quote unquote resilient and beautiful woman by naming their horse after her talks to the racism that is so it's almost as it's like the air that we breathe you know and so like on the one hand you've got tim scott talking about his bootstrap magical bootstrapping is what i heard someone call it it's like right <laughs> but you got to recognize in order for you to have you know pull up your boots you have to own some boots first and most black folks don't even get the opportunity to own the boots so there's right. that piece and then you have white folks who think they're doing the right thing not understanding the institution. So it's like, well, I'm a good individual. I'm not trying to dismantle any institutions. And my individual act of naming a horse after a black woman mm. is going to move this conversation forward somehow. I mean, in some ways it's a fitting example of how 
divorced people are from the actual, from an understanding of the root problems and the actual problems, right? That you could think by like naming a horse that that does something, um, but like it doesn't really ask anything of you, right? Like everybody wants to, not everybody, but a lot of people want to do something about racism, about racist policing, but like don't want anything to be asked of them. They want to do things with this totally within their orbit of comfort zone, right? Yes. So it's like, oh, in our in our horse racing orbit, I don't even know, in our horse racing <laughs> orbit, we're going to name a horse because we want to do something, call attention to. As long as it changes nothing in my life and discomforts me. Correct, right. As long as I can like, you know, in terms of get credit for like naming this, but like doesn't at all change the way in which I live my life or do things. And that's not what, it, in, in terms of to do this type of racial justice type of work, that's not what's required at all. Also to me, in terms of the other aspect of this is that you're off, obviously not in communication with like people's families and like people who are actually doing this type of work, right? That like, oftentimes we are in our own world, not we, not you and I, but oftentimes people are in their own worlds um, and in their own worlds coming up with what they think are good solutions to very deep problems and are not actually listening to the people that are in some ways closest to what is actually going on, right? Because they, that's, that's too hard. That would make your life somewhat uncomfortable. And, and then that, they would then ask something of you to do something different about to be better your own life and that's not harder. what people want yeah mm. well as always i hate the fact that time flies whenever we start talking um thank you so much for coming on you all our listeners will hopefully continue to think about what's in it for us in not just politics but all things around us so dr megan ming francis tell me what's next for you so I'm working on one more public facing book about how to fund a movement that thinks that th thinks about the intersection of philanthropy and social movements. Um, and the other book that I've been thinking and researching about honestly now for what what is 10 years um, is a book about the development and the end of the convict lease system in Texas, Tennessee um, and Alabama and tries to connect uh, the convict lease system to also the development of modern capitalism in Wall Street um, mm. in the middle and end of the 19th century. So I'm really looking forward to getting to it. Well, whatever I can do to help, because I want to read these books. Too sweet. Thank you so much, Dr. Megan Ming Francis, for joining us on What's In It For Us. Come back soon. It's good to be here. Thank you for listening to What's In It For Us. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. Please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments to podcast at thegrio.com. What's In It For Us podcast is executive produced by Blue Talusma and co-produced by Abdul Kudus and Antonio Thompson.